you open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin our time there. This morning we're finishing up the Q&A sermons series. This is the opportunity where the church body submits questions and we seek to answer them from a biblical worldview. I thought it proper to begin our time with this specific question that it has impact on just our daily Christian life. And it, this question applies to every single Christian. It deals with an essential implication of Scripture. That if we say that this is God's word, then it is sufficient for everything that you will ever need. Now this question is a great one, and one we want to have a good grasp on. So let's just first read the passage, and then I'll read the question. First, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse Two, for the sake of context. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So the question reads, there are a couple, a couple aspects of the question, but, it, but the first part reads this question, what are the assumptions of this verse, and what are the applications of it? What is included in life and godliness? It's a great question. This verse is a huge proof text for our understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. In other words, is Scripture truly sufficient for everything that you need? This is a, a critical verse. Now, in order to answer that question, I do want to point out a couple important observations that will eventually flesh out some of these answers. If you notice in verse 3, he says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything for life and godliness. He uses the verb granted. It literally means like gifted. It's been bestowed upon you. It's, it's given to you without any of your merit. You didn't deserve it. It's been bestowed to you, gifted to you. And Peter here uses the perfect tense which is a definite action that is done at some point in the past that still has ongoing effects for the present forevermore. So he's saying here that God has granted, bestowed upon the believer everything that this believer will need for life and godliness at one point of time. And when was that? Through the true knowledge, he says, of Christ. So when that sinner came to true knowledge of Christ, God gave that sinner everything everything that he will ever need to live a godly life from that moment of new life forevermore. Huge implications. And so that one action in the past, that definite action, has impact for the believer, even today and tomorrow and the next day. And so that point here is that he has given to us everything. And what has he given to us? Everything, not some things, not most things, not almost everything, but everything pertaining to life and godliness. This power is a never-ending power from the moment of your spiritual life to the point of your glorification. This is a never-ending power. So what are some of the assumptions, is the question asked. What are some of the assumptions of this? We can assume, based upon God's word, That when God granted to us eternal life, we were made new and granted everything that you needed to live a godly life before him. That you were given everything to live a godly life. 
I want you to think about that because believer, what he's saying here is that everything that you will ever need between the time of your salvation and the time when you see Christ face to face that has already been supplied to you by Christ's power. Think about that. That you are called to live a godly life, a holy life, and it's been given to you, everything. That you lack zero spiritual resources in your pursuit of holiness. You have it all. And really the reason for our lack of spiritual growth is not because we need an extra spiritual boost or as I would disagree with my Pentecostal brothers and sisters that we need a a baptism of the Holy Spirit because we were baptized by the Holy Spirit at our regeneration, right? And so we don't need an extra boost to, to, to surpass and to live a godly life. You don't need that. God gave you everything when he saved you. If I can illustrate this way, all illustrations fall short to a degree, but I hope this is helpful. If someone came to you and said, I'm going to give you for free an in-ground pool in your own backyard. I'm going to install it, and it's yours to use. You can use it as much as you want. Now, the only thing is you can't use any water supply apart from the water supply that I'm going to give you. It's your pool. You can use it, but the water comes from where I supply it. Now, if you're like me, you're like, okay. Okay, I don't want an empty pool. Where's this water supply from? He says, well, from the Pacific Ocean. All the water, the resources, Pacific Ocean. You got all the resources there. As long as the Pacific Ocean remains filled with water, your pool is good with water. I'd be okay with that because essentially what he's saying here is you have endless resources. There's never going to be a point when this water will run dry. It has already been given to you. You have an eternal, vast expanse of water given to you. It's all yours. Don't even worry about it. I'll give everything that you need to have this pool. Like That's a small picture here, but what God is basically saying here is that he's given everything. There's all spiritual resources granted to you, gifted to you by Christ's power so that you can live a holy life life before him. So there's no trial, no temptation, no burden that God has not supplied you with power. Think about that. No matter how hard the temptation, how deep the struggle and the burden, it cannot surpass God's power. It's already yours. That's so freeing in our battle with sin. It's so encouraging in our struggles with trials and burdens in life that come daily. So when we're born again, we're given a new life and new soul, but we're not made perfect yet, right? We're not perfect yet, but the context of this passage says that because this is true, because, believer, you have all these resources, because he's given it to you freely, it's bestowed upon you, because that is true, the context of this passage also thrusts is that for this very reason, he says after that in verse 5, because that is true now, supply in your faith. In other words, because all that's true, grow. Because you have everything, grow. Right? You're not perfect already, but because this is true, grow in your faith. And he says in in, in morality and self-control, et cetera, et cetera. You grow. That's why the word is so essential, because what are our resources found? It's in the word of God. As you grow, 2 Timothy 3.15 through 16, that God has given his everything, his word. He says his word's inspired and he's given it to us for reproof, for instruction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped and ready for every good work. He's given to you everything. And so because it's true, you grow. Since we've been granted everything by his power, 
we find that our sufficiency in what he's provided is in his word. That it's in his word. Now, let's talk about some of the further implications because the extent of this sufficiency does not apply to uh, our, our physical life, per se. Like, what I mean is that just he's given us everything for life and godliness doesn't mean that your medical issues are included in this. It doesn't mean now, okay, now your, your solution for the cold, for COVID-19, for COVID-20, is already, is already found, right? It does not object, address objective medical issues like cancer, the common cold, but, but for life and godliness, he says. In other words, to live a godly life. Now, the rub is, is that nowadays, spiritual problems are being coined as medical problems. That's the rub. That spiritual heart issues have become chemical imbalances. That addictions have become genetic. That spiritual issues have become physical medical issues. So let's solve them medically and physically. And that's a problem. But the sufficiency of scripture says for our heart spiritual issues are spiritual solutions. And God is given to that in his word. If you believe in the authority and inspiration of God's word, then you must also believe by implication that it is sufficient for everything you need to live a godly life. But this provides us with great hope in growing in Christ's likeness, that the power to live a, a godly life, it's not inherent in you, but it has been gifted to you. And how freeing is that for us in our walk with Christ? Now, a follow-up aspect to this question is, is do we need the works of, of current and past Christians to rightly interpret the Bible? Is Scripture alone enough for an individual to reach Orthodox Christian doctrines? Another good follow-up question to that. Now, we affirm sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone is sufficient. But if you grew up if, or if you have a Wesleyan or Methodist or even Anglican background, they would respond to this answer and say that Scripture alone is not sufficient to arrive at doctrine. What they would say is, the Wesleyan quadrilateral affirms, is that we arrive at doctrine that reads scripture through reason, tradition, and experience. The quadrilateral, it's four. So we arrive at scripture, the doctrine that reads scripture through reason, tradition, and experience. That these four are necessary for us to arrive at sound doctrine. So they would say, yes, we do need tradition and our own experience that validates that. But I, I, I would reject that because it assumes that sound doctrine is a collaborative effort that involves these four elements, that you can't have it apart from these four elements. And I think we should reject this if we believe the sufficiency of Scripture and Scripture alone, right? Now, again, tradition, reason, those aren't bad. It's not bad to look at tradition, what tradition is taught, what the forefathers have taught. It's not bad to use our reason. We should. And even our experience is helpful. But the problem is, is when we become dependent upon these three, tradition, experience, and reason, we become dependent upon these in a way that subverts Scripture. Now, it's when these things inform our doctrine when it becomes dangerous. That I know what Scripture says, but I've experienced this, and that supersedes Scripture. So we're not saying Scripture alone. That because of something you experienced as a, or as a person you know who went through something, that it conflicts with biblical truth, and therefore now that becomes authoritative over Scripture. And that simply says that Scripture is not sufficient. But what we need is the Holy Spirit, which we have. And we need to study, as Scripture says in 2 Timothy 2.15, what we need to do is study, because we have the Spirit, because we have eyes to open and see, 
We need to study to show ourselves approved. And so the works of current and past Christians are certainly helpful for us to understand truth. But we have to understand is that what they've studied and sought to, to relay is already found in God's word. They basically mined out the truth that was already there. They're studying what was there in the text. And let's be clear, Christians, sound, faithful men and women who have ex- exposited God's word, God has used it tremendously to edify the body. Like we can think of pastors, theologians that are very informative to our Christian walk, and amen and amen. But we hold them to what they said, which coincides with the word, that they're mining the truth that's already there. So as much as it coincides with what is already taught, we rightly echo what they said because it's from the mouth of God. So we still want to read everything with discernment, no matter who said it, no matter which theologian said it, no matter which pastor said it. We want to read and hear everything with discernment and check it with scripture. So we don't want to put any theologian on a pedestal, no one on a pedestal, because if we really believe this is sufficient, then we go to this word. Is what he's saying coinciding with that? Because we believe in the sufficiency of this word. One final follow-up question to this is, they said, how do we understand Scripture's sufficiency in light of our dependence on hearing the word preached? And when we say Scripture is sufficient for that, are we assuming the person has read and accurately interpreted Scripture? And so how to respond to that is, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, it's not speaking about the proclaimer of the truth. Okay, so when we're saying that scripture is sufficient, we're not speaking to one who's proclaiming it. We're speaking to the source of the truth. So we're saying what's sufficient there is the actual word. So when we say that scripture is sufficient for everything of a life and godliness, we're saying that the source of the truth is God's word. So if he's proclaiming the truth, the word, that's what we're concerned about. And so by implication, then, all other sources of truth, like psychology, human reason, uh, mysticism, all these must be rejected. Sufficiency of Scripture says that the word is sufficient. It's not speaking of the proclaimer of that word. The Lord has commanded his word to be preached and even to be studied for the purpose of sanctification. So you can't grow in Christ without the studied word. John seventeen seventeen, Jesus said that to sanctify them in your truth, for your word is truth. So the word preached, it maintains that if the word is being preached, what we want to make sure is what is being said does coincide with what the word actually says. So we do assume the person has read and accurately interpreted. We also do our job as Bereans to make sure and go back to the word that this is actually what's in the word. And if that's what the word says, then we also want to be humble and say, Lord, if this is your word, this is what it means. Search me, convict me, and show me how I can be more like Christ. So therefore, we should be, there should be a significant emphasis on the word, because although we're justified, sanctification is a progressive process, that we're growing in Christ's likeness. And as we behold God's glory in his word, that we're transformed by that glory as we see Christ. And so sufficiency of scripture, it does, it's important, it's critical for this church, and it's critical for the church nowadays, especially with so many other sources of truth saying that it's equally relevant so we want to have a right view on that, but we, want to, we need to move on. Second question is, are there any biblical principles or scriptures that apply to moving or relocating a family geographically? Are there any biblical principles or scriptures that apply to moving or relocating a family geographically? Don't move. Third question. 
So from, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's, it's a good question as well. Because how often do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Right? I mean, that's how often. We, we want that. I, I want, Lord, if you just tell me what you want, Lord, just tell me your will. What is it that you want? I'll do it. It's that simple, right? Like, if you just told me, if it was clear, Lord, that's all I'm asking for, right? You don't even have to give me a sign. Just, just tell me. Just whisper it. No, it's, it, it's true. We want to know. But we, let, let's understand that there are two aspects to God's will. Um, his decretive will, in other words, what he's decreed. And some call it his, his secret will. We can't really know it. And that's one aspect of his will. And his preceptive will. In other words, what he's precepted, what he's taught. You can call it his revealed will, right? So his hidden will, which is in the mind of God, we don't know that. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons. Why? So that we may observe his law. So we can't know the mind of God. He has decreed things that we don't know. But he also says he has a revealed will, which we know. And so what do we do about issues that are not clearly indicated in his revealed will, such as moving? Questions like this involve something that is it's not explicitly stated in Scripture uh, we, we don't really know. It's not stated here where to say to move. Should I move to Canaan then? Is that where it starts with the C, right? Like, how do we make these decisions that are not clear in God's word about what we should do? Ultimately here, issues like that is really left up to Christian freedom. It's left up to Christian freedom. If it's not explicit in God's word, it is left up to Christian freedom. But that doesn't mean God does not care about your decision still. Okay? It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about these types of decisions. So we still want to think biblically about everything because can we make bad decisions? Yes, we certainly can. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that even the thoughts and the intentions of us are important to God. That even how you're thinking and what you're intending, that is important in God's mind. So unless we're dealing with something that's clearly indicated in God's revealed will... Making God-honoring decisions will often come down to your thoughts, your intentions, and your desires in that decision. And so here are a few biblical principles that we should implement in things like this, moving a family geographically. Number one is to have a humble and prayerful attitude before the Lord through the whole process. A humble and prayerful attitude before the Lord through the whole process. James 1.5 reminds us that if any of you ask, lacks wisdom, what should you do? You ask, Right? And so we realize that I need wisdom, and so what I'm going to do, Lord, give me wisdom through this process. Remain humble through it as well, realizing that you're not going to hold clutchly tightly to your own view and what your desires are. I really want to move, and really I just want to hear from people and things that's going to affirm that decision. We need to check our hearts, have a humble and prayerful heart throughout the whole process of making this decision. Number two, get all the facts. Get all the facts. Proverbs 18.13 says that he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. This is speaking in the context of one who wants to speak his mind before he actually hears everything. Now that actually applies to making decisions. Because if we want to pull the trigger and make a big decision without knowing, hearing all the facts, how foolish that would be of us. So how do we apply that to making decisions? Is you want to get all the facts of what's actually the implications of this decision you're trying to make. If you want to move a family geographically, you need to know just simple things like, what's the weather going to be like? Can you live with that? Can you deal with it? What's the culture like? There's going to be a culture shock. Are you prepared for that? 
Do you have a family in the area? Does that matter to you, being away from family, being close to family? Schooling options, is there any implications on that? Is it going to have any impact on your business, on your work, on your finances? I mean, this, this is a whole detailed investigative work you got to do here of looking at what are the implications of moving here, just so you can know. My old pastor, when people asked him this very question, he would respond to them, and he would say, what is the most important thing to you? They asked him, I want to move. We're going to move out of state. What's your input? He would tell them, what is the most important thing to you? And most of the time, what they would respond is they would say, well, having a good, solid church and seeing my children grow up in the Lord. Those are probably the, the most important things to us. And they would say that. Now, if that is the most important thing to you, how does that alleged importance coincide with the decision to move? That's a big decision. So if that's very important to you, how does a solid church and your children growing in the Lord coincide with the decision? Now, it can. I'm not saying it doesn't. It, it certainly can. But it's one thing to check with our motives and our intentions. Is, is really what we're saying is truly important to us actually flushing out in this decision? How does this allege with our, our priorities? So you need to get all the facts, search everything about all you can, and then number three, test your motives and desires. Test your motives and desires. Galatians 5.13 says that you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not let your freedom turn into an opportunity of the flesh. So you're called to freedom, but Paul says here, in your freedom, don't use that freedom to appease your flesh. Don't use it for an opportunity of the flesh. So how can we walk in that? Are you seeking ultimate peace joy, fulfillment from this that you are not designed to get from this. It's not wrong to have good desires and have desires, but are those ultimate desires? Are you seeking something from the world that only God can offer you? Does this decision nurture your selfishness? Does it nurture your fears? I just want to be around people like me. Does it nurture your worldly desires? In other words, is this an opportunity for the flesh? I'll finally get the home I want, right? It's not a bad idea. It's not a bad desire, right? We all want a nice home, but has that desire mastered you? Like, will you do that by any, any means necessary? Again, none of these things means it's, it's, you can't do this, but what God cares about, the thoughts and intentions. So you want to test your desires and your intentions. These are the type of things that we really can't know, even when we're trying to test our own motives and my own desires. How deceitful are our own hearts in trying to understand things? We say this is what we want and we think, but this is really where wisdom comes in from outsiders. Proverbs 15 verse 22 says that without consolation, consultation, excuse me, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors they succeed. And so it is biblical, it is wise in making decisions, even big decisions, to seek wise counsel. What are other people seeing in your heart? Are they discerning selfishness? Are they discerning pride? Are they discerning sinful motives? Get wisdom if it's a big decision like that. What does your spouse think about this and why? Would this decision negatively impact your spouse? And if so, in what way? Now, even if it does negatively impact your spouse or your kids, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. But the question you want to ask is, does this impact them because of my selfishness? Is the negative impact coming from my selfish desire, or is it coming from a decision that I'm doing that I think honors the Lord? 
So just because there's a ne- negative impact doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but you need to assess, am I driving force? Is this driving force my selfishness, my own agenda, or is this an opportunity to shepherd them through this? Proverbs, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So how will it impact your spiritual growth, but also the spiritual growth of your family? If finding a solid church is on your list of most important things, obviously be wise to see, are there solid churches in that area? Are there a couple churches you've already highlighted that, yeah, I think we can stake our, our foot in one of these churches? That's most important, and that should be settled very soon. So with a prayerful heart, a humble heart, and having sought the facts, examine your heart and motives, you're free to do what you desire. But this next question now, it builds upon this principle of decision-making, and it deals with the issue of lots in Scripture. With the issue of lots. Now, the question, I'll just read the question. It says that it appears that casting lots, whatever it, exa- whatever it exactly entailed, was an acceptable way for individuals or small groups to trust God's sovereignty and providence, sometimes in even big decisions such as dividing land, dividing ministry duties, and choosing a 12th apostle. But is the concept permissible for larger life decisions as a way of submitting to God's sovereignty and providence, provided we have followed other biblical decision-making principles, such as the ones we went over? So in other words, can we use lots to make decisions in that sense? It's a good question, but let's look at what lots was in Scripture. Because in in Scripture, they were often used to determine God's will in many situations. We can't really know for certain what these lots looked like, if there were rocks that they used, if there were sticks, um, stones. We don't really know what the lots looked like when they were casting lots. But it was an ancient custom that was familiar to believers and non-believers, that many people did in Israel and outside of Israel, that lots was a very familiar custom. And that these lots would be determined, for example, who would be the next leader? Um, Where are we going to settle? Who's going to settle where? Lots were used often. It's almost like you think about rock, rock, paper, scissors in our context. Like, who's going who's gonna to play next, right? Who's going to play who? It's very similar in, in thought. And in fact, as part of the uniform for the Levitical priest, they had what is called the, the Urim and the Thummim. In Exodus 28, verse 30, it reads that you shall put in the breastplates, no, sorry, in the breastpiece of judgment, the Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be over Aaron's heart. And when he goes in before the Lord, and Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. And so in, in the Old Testament, the priests, they had the Urim and Thummim, and they would use that to, dis- to determine what God's will was for them in apportioning the land and where they should settle and who would be king. In many ways, it was used by God. It was used in Numbers 26, verse 55 for apportioning the land. Even Joshua chapter 7 with the sin of Achan. Remember how they determined where is the sin coming from that God has cursed us now? Like, who, who sinned? And they drew lots. And it came to Achan by lots. First Samuel chapter 10 in terms of choosing the next leader. But it wasn't always automatic or mechanical in the sense that God was obliged to always answer by lots. In fact, there were times when God refused to answer the Urim. For example, Saul when he wanted to seek Samuel's counsel, he ended up going to the witch. Why? Because he sought the Urim and the prophets, but he couldn't get an answer. And so he went to the witch. So God was not obliged to, to respond to the lots. He wasn't held to that. 
And what's also interesting is that in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 21, Saul was chosen by Lot publicly as the king of Israel. They wanted a king, right? And, and Samuel sought God. But what happened in that process? Samuel sought the Lord, and God said, it's going to be Saul. He already told, who, told him who the king is going to be. But after that, Samuel drew lots before the people, and it came to Saul. Now, for us reading, like, we knew it was going to be Saul. God said to Samuel. But Samuel, knowing who God chose, chose used lots. Why? It was also used as a public affirmation before the people on who God chose to be king. That God used the lots to say, this is the man I chose. And it's also used in in Joshua as well, in Numbers 27, verse 15, where God already revealed to Moses, who's next in line? It's going to be Joshua. And yet, lots were used publicly before the people so they could see, this is the man that God chose to lead us next, Joshua. So it's, it's used as a means of public affirmation knowing that God had approved it. Now, more to the heart of the question is, lots are never prescribed for us to do in the New Testament. Now, indeed, lots are mentioned in the New Testament. For example, you think of when they're trying to replace the 12th apostle after Judas, after Judas killed himself. They used lots to determine who was going to be the 12th apostle. And who was it? Matthias. And they, how did they choose Matthias? They had two guys come to him in Acts 1, and they had two guys, and they said, how are we going to choose? They used lots, and it fell on Matthias. However, I would argue that even in that situation, that fell in line with Jesus specifically choosing his 12 men previously. That God went, Jesus went to each man, the 12 apostles, and chose them personally and specifically. And lots was just another way that they did for this 12th apostle. It is descriptive, but I don't still think it's prescriptive for us. And so though lots are mentioned in the New Testament, it's still never prescribed to New Testament believers. And in fact, the casting of lots is, is never mentioned after the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church. It's never mentioned. So if we seek to rely on lots in, a, in the same manner that the Old Testament saints did, to, to hear from God so that I can know what to do, if we're seeking to do lots, rock, paper, scissors, rolling dice, whatever you name it, if we're seeking to do that, to, you, to hear from God in the same way that the Old Testament saints did, then we fall into a form of mysticism, seeking to, divine, to hear communication from the divine in a manner that God has not prescribed. It's dangerous. But notice here how the New Testament emphasizes for us the importance of having a transformed and a renewed mind. In the New Testament for us, what's prescribed is if we want to know what pleases God, the emphasis for us time and time again is to have a transformed and a renewed mind. Why? Romans 12.2 says that being transformed in the renewal of your mind so that you may be able to prove what is the will of God, what is good acceptable and perfect. Philippians 1, verse 9 through 11, uh, verse 9 says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. That he is praying that your mind would be renewed so that you know the things that are excellent. Not just good, but the things that are best. In other words, We are to have a transformed, renewed mind in the word of God, in prayer, so that we can know what is most pleasing to God. The emphasis for us as New Testament believers is to have a transformed mind that is informed with the word of God so that we can think biblically, and if we think biblically, we make good biblical decisions. 
That's what we should focus on. As New Testament believers who have the completed word of God, the indwelling spirit, we realize that God does not communicate with his church in this way. And again, to quote James 1.5, if we lack wisdom, we ask. And since we've been granted everything for life and godliness, we don't use lots in order to determine what is the will of God. But it still begs the question, would it be a sin for a Christian to use any similar idea of casting lots? Is it wrong for us to do this? Rock, paper, scissors, flipping a coin, rolling the dice. Would it be a sin to do these things? And most of the time when we're doing this, we're not seeking to determine God's will. I don't think that's what we're seeking to do most of the time. We're normally saying that, okay, there are more than one good option here. They're all good options. And for the, sim- for the, for the sake of just executing a simple, mindless way, let's do this because it removes any hint of partiality. Let's just rock, paper, scissors. Let's just flip a coin, right? Because all the options are good. We don't want to have any partiality. So let's just do that. That's very simple. We're using it to logistically to, to prevent disorder, right? That's normally what it's being used for. And that's not bad. But in these cases, all the options must be good options if we're going to do this. Because if, if we're going to flip a coin knowing that it can fall on any one of these options, all of these options must be perceivably good options already. Because even in the apportioning of the land, the selecting of leaders, yes, God was sovereign over that. He used lots to, to, to further, to progress his will through lots, through the Urim and Thummim. But also the purpose in God, in God instilling lots was to prevent against strife amongst the people, to prevent against any disorder or chaos. Because Proverbs teaches in Proverbs 18, verse 18, that the cast lot puts an end to strife and decides between the mighty ones. So it's not wrong to use lots when we want to do it to guard against partiality. Like we don't want to make it seem like we're favoring one person or one thing over the other. So it's not wrong to do it with the spirit of, of guarding against partiality, if we've affirmed that all the options are good, right? Now, here's some cautions and warnings in doing this, because to do it with that, with that heart, we want to make sure we're guarding against favoring one person over another. That's, that's good. All the options are perceivably good. Like, there's no issue there. But here's some, still some cautions or warnings as we do this. I think if we will, if you do, your decision to leave it up to providence is not a cloak for laziness. Right? We don't want to just cast lots, flip a coin, because I just don't want to think and do. I don't want to think about what's honoring. I just want to just, what's, what's the easy thing to do here? It's not just a cloak of just being lazy because you don't want to wisely investigate all the options. So as long as you're not doing it in that spirit. And also, if it doesn't nurture resentment amongst the parties. So, for example, if you're a parent and you have young kids and every day after dinner, you flip a coin to see who's going to take out the trash or who's going to clean the kitchen, who's going to clean the kitchen. If, I mean, you do that every night, that can be exasperating to the kids. Because what if it falls on the same kid for all week? It's like, how helpful is that? And, and really, as a parent, as a leader, like, is that the best way to raise and to nurture your home? Like, you are nurturing resentment. And that's not what it's intended to do. You want to guard against that. And so if you're using it in that sense, and just lazy parenting or lazy responsibility, then that's, that's not really the best use of the lots. And also, or finally, I'll say, if lots, you're not turning it into a means of hearing from God in the name of providence, right? I know God is sovereign. I know he's, he's sovereign. He's, he's going to use everything in providence. So whatever happens, it means his will. So let me just flip this coin, and God's providence is going to go forth. But however, 
God's sovereignty does not absolve responsibility. And so you can, you can, just because he's decreed it in that sense, doesn't mean he's pleased with it. So just because he's sovereign does not mean you're not responsible. So you still want to be a good steward with whatever the situation is. All right, we must move on. Next question is on confession. Confession. The question asks, to whom do we need to confess our sins? God alone or God and man? Who do we need to confess our sins? God alone or God and man? Well, generally speaking, our confession needs to be as broad as the impact of the sin. Our confession needs to be as broad as the impact of the sin. So if you have an argument with another person or you stole something from another person, the impact there is with another person. So in which case, you do need to confess to the Lord, first and foremost. But you also need to confess to the recipient of that, which is the other person who you stole against, who you struck, right? who you cursed against in the argument. If, if the impact there is as broad there as someone else, you confess to them as well. Think of Matthew 5, 23, that if your brother has something against you right before your offering, you stop your offering and go reconcile to that brother. So if you know that there's an offending party to your sin, then you confess to God, but you also confess to the person who was impacted by your sin. So your confession needs to be as broad as the audience of that sin. Lusting after someone, or having envy against someone in your heart, is not necessarily that it has impact against the other party. So you confess that sin before the audience of that sin, which is you and God. So you just confess in your heart before the Lord of the lust, of the envy, jealousy, maybe hatred or bitterness that you had. Let's ask, what about in those cases where there is no audience, no impact, or no perceivable impact of the sin? Should you still confess to others? This is a case-by-case situation, but here's some biblical insight on it. Because there are times when sin will torment a person's conscience. That there will be a sin that maybe is not done publicly, but will torment a believer's conscience. They will confess it to God in secret, but their conscience is still upset about it. In those cases, it may be profitable to confess, not necessarily to the person that your heart sin was directed at, although that may be appropriate sometimes, but to other believers for the sake of your own spiritual health. So there may be times when it is profitable for that reason, for your own spiritual health. And I get this from James chapter 5. And I'm going to read a few verses in James chapter 5, starting at verse 13. And let me just read it first, and I'll go from there. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now he uses sick here in this, in this verse, in this passage here, a couple times. And how I used to understand this passage, actually, is in the past when he says, if anyone's sick, you call the elders, right, and, and confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. I used to understand this passage as James referring to physical sickness, that there may be some reasons, and some still do interpret that way, by the way. Um, but if you're sick, 
there are some times when a believer sins and God does inflict sickness upon them so that they could be restored through repentance. That is one way of understanding it. But as I studied this further, I actually came at a different outcome in that he's not speaking of physical sickness here in this passage, but he's speaking of spiritual sickness. Spiritual sickness. Now, we don't have time to walk through all the exegetical points here, but but I do think he's referring here because he uses sick in verse 14. And this word sick that he uses in verse 14, it's used many times in the New Testament. And in fact, 18 times that this word sick is used in in the New Testament, it's used of physical sickness, like an actual sickness, physically. But also 14 times in the New Testament, that same word is used for spiritual sickness, like an ache or longing of the soul. And in fact, in verse 15, it's it's only used twice. It's it's word sick again, it's translated in our Bibles, but it's a different word from sick in verse 14. And it's only used twice in the New Testament at all. It's used here, And also in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. And that reads, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary or sick and lose heart. That he's using here, that word's being used not in a physical way, but in a spiritual aching, a longing of the soul. So the context of this passage in James chapter 5 is spiritual or emotional sickness that is sometimes caused by sin. In which case, James exhorts us to confess our sins to one another. Why? So that you may be healed. So confess your sins that you may be healed spiritually. You're sick spiritually, so confess that you may be healed spiritually. So if you have not confessed to others, again, like your sin is as broad as the audience, but if you haven't confessed to others, not because you know I confess to the Lord, it's only between me and him, and I'm forgiven, but if you have not confessed to others because of pride or maybe shame maybe guilt like think of the reasons why you have not confessed to others if it's really those deep-seated heart issues then perhaps public confession to trusted one or two other trusted people may be profitable and may be prudent at this point you've been forgiven of your sin but you're still harboring pride in your heart and think about it if we're called to bear fruits in keeping with repentance then a public confession may be prudent, not necessarily for forgiveness before God, but in humility, that you want to exalt God's grace, his mercy, and not try to still cover your own self-proclaimed righteousness. There may be times when public confession is important because we, I confess to the Lord, he was the only audience to it, but the reason why I don't share it with anyone because I don't know how they're going to look at me. How are they going to view me? What are they going to say about me? What are they going to know? They're going to think I used to be the spiritual mature one. Are they going to think less of me? Those heart issues stem out of sin sometimes and can ache our soul. And James says here, confess to others so that you could be healed spiritually. So again, it is a case-by-case basis. The confession should be as wide as the impact of the sin. But if you confess your sin to God alone and your conscience is still bothered by it, I would recommend speaking to a mature Christian and seeing perhaps there's something that you haven't seen in this equation. There's maybe something you're not seeing And they can administer God's word to you or point out areas where horizontal confession to someone else may be still needed. In all this, you know, we're not talking about judicial forgiveness in a salvific way. I think, hope we understand that. Because think about was the thief on the cross, was was he not right with God because he didn't confess to the person against whom he stole? No, he was forgiven. We're not talking about judicial salvation here. But I'm speaking of fatherly forgiveness that can negatively impact our relationship with the Lord 
if there's not genuine confession or if there's still spiritual sickness due to sin. That's what we're talking about. And so it's a case-by-case basis that may be profitable at times in confessing to trusted one or two people or more. You've got to move on to the next question. It involves making, about making disciples. The question reads, per scripture, we are told to go and make disciples on the earth. For the majority of us, that task is extremely difficult. Though we may feel confident in our faith and most of us are prepared to share our personal testimony, the actual action to initiate the need of the unbeliever to hear and understand that it is their sin that will keep them from eternal salvation, except for the shed blood of Christ. So my question is, how can we best fulfill that directive from Christ beyond prayer, biblical study, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit? In other words, how can we fulfill that, the directive of Christ to make disciples? How do we get them to see their sin? How do we do that? This is a, a practical question that is presumably relatable to a lot of us. Because for many of us, the biblical command to make disciples is daunting. When we think of that, like as Pastor Eric was talking about evangelism, that's daunting when we think about that. But I think it would be helpful for us to keep in mind this commandment here, the context of Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, which is where he's bringing out this question. Or she. Um, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, And the main command is to make disciples in this passage. Like, that's the main command. Let's first understand that. He's drawing this question from this passage. The main command is to make disciples. Verse 18 says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the main command in this passage here, the Great Commission, is to make disciples. So that kind of helps us first now, because the main command is not to make converts, but to make disciples, now, although by implication you can't have a disciple you know, who has not been converted, but the weight of this expectation is upon making a disciple of Christ. That's what Jesus is, is getting at. And so what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Christ. And so discipleship is teaching others to follow Christ. Teaching others to follow Christ. It requires more than just an evangelistic encounter, but life-on-life relationship that is designed to help them follow Christ. So the main thrust here is not just about encountering someone and sharing them the gospel, though we need to, but the main thrust here is helping someone to grow to be like Christ, helping them follow Christ, to make disciples. And so if you want to ask, how do we make disciples? Notice the the participles, the ing verbs in this passage. Like, how do we make disciples? The first one you see is in the beginning of verse 19. It's not an ing form, but it's still a participle in the Greek, and it's go. So in other words, make disciples going. You got to go. You got to go, go out. He's saying you have to go and spread. But also another ing verb you see there is baptizing in the middle of verse 19. So how do you make converts? Baptizing. So that's implying there of evangelism, that they're converted, and so now you baptize them to be uh, in line with what Christ has commanded for new believers. But also a third ING verb, he says, in verse 20, is teaching. And so you're, you're teaching them. So how do we fulfill this command to make disciples? Is by teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded, all of his word. 
So that's why you can't have discipleship without instruction. So how do you help someone follow Jesus? If we want to make disciples, how do you disciple others? This command applies to every single believer that we all ought to be a part of this commission to make disciples, help others to be like Christ. So how do we do that? Is the main part is instruction. We do that by teaching. But more practically speaking, it's the life on life. That you are spending time with this individual or people. That you're spending time with them. You're investing in them. You're teaching them how to fight sin. You're teaching them how to pray. You're teaching them how do you read God's word? How do you understand it and live it out? How do you fight sin? How, what is the importance of Christian community? Like there's, this is just more than just an encounter. Because the, the daunting aspect of the question is like how do I get someone to see this? But really, Jesus here is saying, build people up to be like Christ. And so this command is directed at all of us. How are you building people up to be like Christ? Baptizing, teaching, going out. Furthermore, you do this in your sphere of influence. Think about this. Like, How do I practically work this out? Make disciples in your sphere of influence. The closest sphere of influence for all of us is the home. The home. How often do we have prime opportunities for our children, for our spouses, for our family to make disciples? That is an ongoing opportunity. So if you want to be obedient to this, start with your closest sphere of influence. How can you make disciples in your own home? Shepherd your children, evangelizing them, and if the Lord wills, disciple them. Your neighbors, coworkers, be intentional about these relationships. And so since discipleship also implies evangelism, I I do want to briefly address another aspect of this question. Because the the person asks, you know, it's it's daunting to address people and to evangelize them and getting them to see their need of sin. But we have to understand here, if our theology is right here, we can't help someone see their need of sin in and of ourselves. That's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit is the one that opens the eyes. Remember, he convicts the world of righteousness, convicts the world of sin. So our job in this is to merely be a proclaimer of that very truth and let the Holy Spirit do the work upon their hearts. We must be faithful to proclaim the truth and not mess it up. In other words, we're like a server. We got the food from the kitchen, and our job is to not spill the food, don't let it hit the floor, and just get it to the table. If you can do that, that's what we're called to do. Don't worry about if they're going to say it's too salty or not. That's not up to you. You're not the chef. You didn't make it. You didn't write it. You just want to bring it from the kitchen and bring it to the table and don't mess it up. That's all we can do. So select two to three people in your life who who you come in contact with regularly. Commit to those two or three people to pray for them regularly. Pray for them. And then pray for opportunities to have conversations with them. And then develop a genuine relationship with them. And just ask questions. Get to know them. What is your faith? Where do you go to church? What do you believe about this? What do you think about this? And then get opportunity. Hey, that's interesting. Can I share with you what I believe? Let me just share with you what what I know. Let me tell you what God has, has, has taught me. Can I show you what the Bible says about the good news? Many times people love to share about themselves. And most of the time they're going to say, sure, tell me what you want to hear. And bring it from the kitchen and bring it to the table. So on that note, be equipped in that sense. Learn Bible verses that coincide with the gospel. Know what verses you're going to go to to speak about God's holiness, man's sin, Christ's redemptive work, his person. 
about faith and repentance? What are the verses that you've memorized to share in those encounters? Memorize those verses. Know how to rightly articulate the gospel. We've got to move on. Last question. Um, oh, man. This is on witnessing the Muslims. In witnessing the Muslims who believe Jesus was just a prophet and is convinced the Quran is always right, what is the best way to approach them besides in a, in a kind and loving way? So how do we minister to Muslims? Now, the majority of the time, we won't be called to an, an apologetic debate with a Muslim, but normally we're just encountering them in a setting where you're just sharing your beliefs. And I think it's good to have at least... a, a Somewhat of idea of the tenets of Islam. You want to understand the religion, but I'm just going to highlight a few significant issues with Islam, and then we'll, we'll go from there. But especially since this question addresses the issue that the Quran is always right. Now, even though the Muslim community was officially launched under the leadership, under the leadership of Muhammad in the 7th century, they claim that their history goes back to Abraham. They claim he's their father. Their origins begin with him. They believe that the Bible has been distorted with, with teachings, regarding the deity and the atonement of Christ, and so which resulted in Allah uh, sending down a subsequent revelation to his prophet Muhammad. So the Bible has been tainted, so now we've got to give new revelation to Muhammad. So that's what they say Allah did. And so any contradiction between the Bible and the Quran, Quran is right. So the problem with this rationale is that the manuscripts of our current Bible match manuscripts far before even Muhammad came in the picture. But even more, the Quran is exalted as, as being words directly from Allah. And these words, they say, are perfect, just as they teach that Allah is perfect. And even one respected Muslim scholar said that God's commands cannot contradict one another. This is important, getting, getting this to understand here, is that God's commands cannot contradict one another. However, this principle that they teach, that there's no contradiction in the words of Allah, because he is perfect, is not seen in their writings. The very principle is violated multiple times in the Quran. That there are serious contradictions within the Quran. That even though adultery is forbidden in Surah 24, verse 33, yet prostitution and limited marriage is permissible in Surah 424. Even though alcohol is forbidden on earth in Surah 5, verse 90 through 91, alcohol is allowed in paradise in Surah 56, 18 and other places. And even though murder is a serious sin, in Surah chapter 2, verse 191, and also 2, verse 217, Muslims are still commanded to murder those who refuse to submit to Islam. In Surah 9, verse 5. I mean, in addition to these, there are just countless other contradictions throughout the Quran that confront its very claim that there are no contradictions in it or within Allah. And the irony within these contradictions is that the Quran specifically states that no change there can be in the words of God. It states in, it's in that book that there can be no change in the words of God in 1064. And so, therefore, any change, um, therefore, there can't be any change or, or alteration to his word. But yet, as there's already been pointed out, as I pointed out, there are changes in the words of Allah. And these changes are not just minor changes. They're not small changes. That these are moral issues and moral commands, that there are contradictions. And even more beyond that, Islam even teaches the, what's called the doctrine of abrogation. The doctrine of abrogation. And this doctrine teaches is that previous revelations are annulled by newer revelations if they conflict with the previous one. 
So in other words, if Allah gave a revelation earlier and there's a later revelation that conflicts with it, then the doctrine of abrogation says that the previous one is annulled. I mean, that's held by them. And that's even listed in the Quran in, the Quran in chapter 2, verse 106. So in other words, if that previous revelation contradicts it, later revelation, it prevails. But even that is internally inconsistent to affirm that there's no contradiction in the words of God, and yet you affirm by doctrine that there are contradictions, and if there are contradictions, it just annuls the previous contradiction. Like it's internally inconsistent to do this, to say that there is no change in Allah, and yet he would say things that contradict what he previously said. The very doctrine of obligation implies that Allah's words do not change, and yet we see that very so clearly in their holy book. And even more, the, the Muslim himself acknowledges that he cannot know anything about Allah's essence or his character. In their writings, they teach that they don't know who God is, but yet they're commanded to blindly submit to him. Denying the death and resurrection of Christ, the Islamic teachings of Allah, the Quran, Muhammad, and salvation, it basically reveals that they're really working in a works-based system. It's all works-based, trusting in an indecisive God whom they don't know. The Quran teaches that the judgment day will consist of determining man's deeds and weighing them accordingly. The judgment day is going to basically be getting the deeds, and they're going to weigh their deeds. And if your deeds prevail, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you enter paradise. If your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, then you're damned. That's what they teach. It says in verse 20, chapter 21, verse 47 of Surah, that we set up a just balance scales for the day of resurrection. Thus, no soul will be treated unjustly. We shall bring it forth to be weighed, and our reckoning will suffice. Within the framework of Islam, there's no genuine solution for sin. The only hope is that Allah might be merciful to them, but they have no hope that he will be. They're trusting in that they did enough good deeds so that he would receive them. But there's no basis. There's no hope for that. Now, if you have an opportunity for long-term evangelism with a Muslim, I would recommend that you have a firm grasp on these teachings. You need to know this yourself. And so if you have a long-term relationship, you have a neighbor who's Muslim, a family member, a good friend, I would recommend one of these two books by R.C. Sproul and, and Abdul Salib. It's called The Dark Side of Islam. Read that one. Another one James White, James White wrote is what every Christian needs to know about the Quran. Both of those gives you a good idea. If you're going to have a long-term relationship, you want to have a good idea so you're not just speaking from just what someone said. You want to know and study. But in all encounters, whether long-term or short-term, this is what, something my dad told me growing up, and I think it's applicable even in this, is that in evangelistic encounters, you don't want to, your primary motive, your primary goal is not to win the argument but to win their soul. Right? You want to win their soul. You don't want to be worried about being right in every sentence and making sure you respond and jab at everything they say. You are concerned about their soul. That doesn't mean we don't seek to be prepared and to have a well-articulated reason for our hope, but don't let that drive you to pride and you forget that you're speaking to an eternal soul that will one day face Christ. So therefore, the sweet gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ must be shared with this person. Their eyes need to be open to the truth that Christ is found, that the hope is found in Christ and in his word. In spite of the truth in the Bible, the Muslims look to the Quran to obey life and to live life. And the Muslims' hope is ultimately in themselves. They're basically trusting that, hoping that they did enough good deeds and that they hope that they've earned enough right to enter into paradise. They're basically just hoping that they did enough. It's completely workspace. 
But the Muslim's eyes need to be opened to, to become aware that there is no way to earn salvation, that you cannot do enough. And although he hopes Allah to be merciful, his hope is ultimately in himself. The Muslim is trusting in himself, and they need to see that they have basically isolated themselves from God's word, and they are simply trusting upon their own works. That's just plain and simple. The real hope for the Muslim is found solely in Christ. And the overwhelming guilt and fear that lurks within the Muslim's heart, it can only be addressed by surrendering to Christ. It's the only hope for them. They must turn from their sin and trust in his death and resurrection. That the only hope is to place their hope in Christ. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, in him, we know that sin is not only dealt with and forgiven, but sin is defeated. That for the believer who's trusting in Christ, there is no fear of being found guilty because we have and we trust in Christ. So when you're interacting with a Muslim, the sufficient work of Christ must be proclaimed. It must be proclaimed to them. The Muslim does not have hope, and Christ is the Muslim's only hope for eternal life. They must see they've bought into a bankrupt system, a man-made religion with a false God, a false hope for salvation, and a false book. They must see that it's internally inconsistent and they're standing upon their own works and the only hope is to plead with them of the sufficient work of Christ that is not works-based but is received only by grace through faith. So, of course, the sweet gospel must be proclaimed to them. And as the question says, you do this with love and compassion, but with clarity and with boldness. Now, I'm stepping into your lunch hour, so I'm going to end it there. But I hope that this is helpful in us seeing is how do we think about things biblically? What does God's word have to say? And how do we walk this out? And has applied it all manners of life. First Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 reminds us of the hope that Paul's praising God that when they heard the word of God, they received it not as the word of man, but as it is the very word of God. If God's word sits upon your heart in that, in that way, you too should be joyful that you have received God's grace to hear from his word, to receive it as it is. It's not just a man-made book. It is the very word of God. So we should rejoice in the work of Christ in our own life and that grace that has been extended to us. I've got to close it there, but I'm going to close with a prayer, and we'll end our time with reflecting in song. Father God, we do give you thanks for this gift of grace you've given to us. And Lord, we realize that there are many, many, many issues of life but you have supplied us with ample need in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would not allow us just to be puffed up intellectually, but may we be softened, have a softened heart, and to love others and to live for your glory and your glory alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.